From the studios of Teeing It Up in the Swamps of Jersey, this is Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling for Monday, June 11th. It's United States Open Week. Officially, Shinnecock will host it later this week, and we welcome in from Golf News Net to preview it in his usual spot, Mr. Ryan Ballinger. Good evening, sir. Jeremy, how are you? I am good. Um... Uh, let's, let's just get this out of the way. Have, uh, and, and my dad asked me this and I, I honestly could not remember. When was the last full swing hole out to win a golf event where the, uh, result was already basically sewn up? Because I can't remember the last time we saw what happened with Dustin yesterday where he's up by four. He's clearly not going to hook it left into the water with a right pin and he holes out and walks off. I, I was trying to think about that too, and I uh, nothing came to mind. Um, you know, I remember Craig Perry winning in a playoff with a hole out at Doral. Yeah, Jonathan Bird did the same thing in Vegas. Yeah, Jonathan Bird won a playoff with a hole in one. Um, I can't remember someone who was already going to win anyway, punctuating with a hole out like that. You know, maybe it was a chip in or something, but not a not a hole out yeah. goal. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, and it was, um, I mean, what was that, a nine-iron mind-blowing that he just, all right, just going to walk after it, going to the whole tournament's over. It, yeah. The way he put that away was remarkable. I mean, it was just, it was done from the start, and, and I'm sure Andrew Putnam knew it. It was done from the start, especially at that two-shot swing at the first. Yes, and, and it was the par at 12, and then the... 359 drive at 13 and you hit that thing to basically you know a, you know two feet and you make the birdie there that that to me was the sequence the par at 12 birdie at 13 um really just was a was a shutting the door type win for Dustin Johnson yesterday in Memphis the other thing that came up yesterday and we've talked about this on air but in a whole different context was Jimmy Walker's backstopping comments, just you know, just a, a brief, brief summary for those who, who don't know what backstopping is. It's when a player either hits a second shot up or chips up or pitches up. A player is off the green, and the player who is on the green near the hole does not mark their ball to act so, so that their ball acts as a backstop for their partner because they get to keep their ball there, and the person who's hitting up then... Um, has it stopped and slowed down by that person's ball? Jimmy Walker basically came out and said, "If it's a friend and I want to help him, I do it. If not, I don't." Um, and that really got taken the wrong way by a whole lot of people yesterday. Um, a, I was surprised that Jimmy Walker, of all people, would say it. he's not the most polarizing figure on the PGA Tour. That's not who you think would say a comment like that. And B, what was just your thoughts on the overall comment? I've kind of stayed away from the whole backstopping conversation for the last couple of years because I, I don't know, I, I just felt like it was kind of silly because I, other than the one time Tony, it worked for Tony Finau at the, the Safeway Open, I'd never really seen supposed backstopping have a significant impact. And then when Jimmy Walker got into his little Twitter conversation with Michael Clayton, and Jimmy Walker was clearly trolling Michael Clayton. I mean, he, he has no plates, has played professional golf for 20 years and is an accomplished architect and all that stuff. He knows his stuff. And for 
Jimmy Walker to basically say, yeah, I backstop. Uh, yes, I give preferential backstopping to guys I like, screw over guys I don't, and want, but want to help most everybody because golf is hard. I mean, that's what he said, golf is hard. Uh, I, I think that's a, a line crossed. I mean, he's effectively admitting to collusion, which is against Rule 22-1, of the rules of golf. So he's basically admitting to cheating in most every instance where this happens. And I think it's finally an admission from a player that, yeah, we're doing this to help each other. It's not because of the excuses they give, which is, oh, well, so-and-so was already playing, or I'm doing it for pace of play purposes, so that way I don't have to go up there and market. Uh, it sounds like that's BS. And... At that point, now it's a bad look. All of a sudden it went from something that seems kind of dumb to, all right, this is a problem. And I think it needs to be addressed pretty quickly. The tour needs to step in and say, look, this is going to give us a bad look if this gets worse from here. So let's clean this up. We understand, but let's clean it up and not do this. Yeah, Yeah. I, um, I... I was pretty surprised too, and I'm with you that whether you're pro backstopping against backstopping, whether this has been going on for 50 years and you know just wasn't caught on camera, or whether this is a brand new thing, this is this has got to get eradicated immediately because this is just not a good look for the game. And I I don't talk politics on this show. I don't delve into politics, but uh, I did not expect headlines about collusion uh, to show up in golf. That's not a sport where I thought collusion headlines would show up. Um, so, needless to say, uh, this has gone in, in, in a direction, as you said, that I don't think many of us um, envisioned it. Let's now shift to the U.S. Open in Shinnecock. You were there. You were you, you played out there on uh, Media Day. Um and what did you think? The, I mean, the place looked, from your pictures and from others, fantastic, and it looks fantastic from what I've seen so far this week. Yeah, I, I was, I mean, how do you not be impressed by a, a top five golf course on the planet? Um, that, <laughs> that would seem extra snooty to not be impressed. Yeah. Um, but it really is remarkable. I mean, it, just a piece of property you're kind of looking at, the golf history that's unfolded there. I mean, it was basically the first incorpor- it is the first incorporated club in the United States, the first club in the United States with a clubhouse. It was the first major club in the United States to admit women did from the start. Um, the history that's unfolded there, the four U.S. Opens, the fifth coming this week, the, there's a Walker Cup there, um, all kinds of seminal moments. And then its next-door neighbors are Sabonic, National Golf Links of America, I mean, literally next door, um, all kinds of other incredible places. It's so cool just to be in that general area. But it, Shinnecock itself was fantastic. The work that Corin Crenshaw have done with the, the club's master plan to reestablish the width that was originally designed by William Flynn in the 1930s, to reestablish green sizes, to, to make them with closer to their truer size where they were originally intended to be, as opposed, as opposed to what's kind of happened over time with mowing that just tends to happen at all, all kinds of courses, not just great courses. And to work with the USGA to establish 
new tee boxes to maximize the property as best they can to, to fight against distance, but to not make it so outrageous uh, that it would look kind of preposterous on television, and to restore the original playing lines, the lines that Flynn intended while adding that distance was great. It, it's a complete golf course. I mean, there are no two holes that play in the same direction. In, in terms of par, you know, consecutive holes or parallel holes, there are, there are none of those. Nine and ten are kind of parallel, but they're across the street from each other, and they're just different asks completely. So other than those two holes, you, you really never experience the same thing two holes in a row, which makes it remarkable in that regard. There aren't many places like that on the planet. And then just the variety of holes that there are, especially for a par 70 quartz. I mean, just the variety of holes. The par threes are the, the best collection of par threes I've ever seen on a golf course, and I will probably ever play on a golf course. Um, they're just they're special, they're unique, they're all different, but they're all fair. And even the second hole, which is going to be 250 yards, which is r- ridiculous uphill to a false front. But... And then to what the USGA did to truck in basically five acres of sod between what they had on their par three course, their short course, elsewhere on the property to kind of take away some fairway because of the width issue from last year's US Open to make it look fairly seamless. It's not, it doesn't look natural, but it's seamless enough for the championship to establish some rough and some penalties for not hitting the fairway. I expect it to be a really great test. There's not going to be any rain that I can tell. Uh, the wind will be modest, so that's going to have an effect. Uh, I, I would be surprised if the winning score is better than five under par, and I think we're going to get a great championship. It's going to redeem this venue, and it's going to redeem the USGA, I think. Um, by the way, is from, from, from what you've been told, is the plan to as soon as this championship is over, yank out that extra turf and return it to where it was pre-October of last year? Yeah, so the, the turf that was sodded off to bring in this fescue is in a storage facility in New Jersey, a unique <laughs> storage facility just for this kind of thing. And when the tournament's over, they'll go back, retrieve that sod, and put it back in. But they will probably wait till the fall to do that. Right. They get through the summer months because just laying aside in July and August is a bad idea. So they'll probably wait till September, October, and then go through this process again. But yeah, so they're planning to bring all that that grass back. Um, one thing that we always talk about is that is how different golf looks on on television than in real life. Everybody, you know, I, I think the most dramatic example of this. Um, is is obviously Augusta National with its slopes. As someone who plays it, or sorry, who played it, and as someone who watches so much golf on television and obviously watched the 04 U.S. Open, what should we be looking for this week in terms of something that will look fairly benign on television but is way harder in person? That's a good question. Um, I, think, I think people will recognize this, but just missing greens. 14 years ago, if you missed a green, you were greeted by four-inch rough, three-inch rough, whatever it was, around the green. And so the miss was a penalty, but you didn't go that far astray off of where your ball missed. So if you might have got, if you got a good lie, you had a chance to recover. 
maybe you could save par or not make worse than bogey. What's going to happen this go-round with all the shaved-off areas, especially behind the green, you can't go long on pretty much any hole or you're dead. But there are probably seven or eight holes where, especially if you go long, you're particularly dead. I think about four, five, the only par five on the front. Uh, six, you can go long a little bit because you can't go short. Eight, going long is a bad idea. Nine, going long could be a bad idea. Uh, it can go down the line, but uh, it's going to put the, your ball is going to bound into places where you're going to have a really awkward recovery shot, an awkward chip shot. You're going to have to either exhibit some ingenuity or you're just going to have to be really precise or both to recover, to stay on the green, to get on the green. So I think it's not something that's going to be readily apparent on every hole. On five, you're going to know it because you're going to be 20 yards below the green. But on some other holes, it, you're not going to see it right away. And then you're going to see guys all of a sudden, when they go along, just throw their club to the ground because they know what's going to happen. So uh, I, I would say that more than anything else is probably it the big thing you're going to notice. And then other than that, I, I think the, the width will be deceptive to a TV viewer because you're like, they can hit the fairway. Of course they can hit the fairway. It's 40 yards wide on average. You're going to hit a lot of fairways. But the ideal angle into a lot of these holes is very specific. And I think that's going to be hard for viewers to notice because they're just going to see fairway and go, oh, that was pretty good. But there are going to be guys that hit fairways and no, they're going to have a hard time making par. Um, and, and way more so than we had with Aaron Hills last year, where the green complexes were frankly enormous. So you could probably still get to the green and probably eke out a two-putt. And the conditions were soft enough that you could probably hold it. You could be aggressive and hold it anyway. I don't think you're going to get that this time. Interesting. Talking to Ryan Ballinger here on Teeing It Up. Well, a lot of people here shaved greens and... and um, Runoffs. They think Pinehurst number two. They think overseas, which is a lot of putters from off the green. You see fairway woods and, and sometimes not the ability to go high. Do you think those are the type of short game shots we'll see this week? I'm curious how people will play it. I mean, the, when I played it, I, I I don't like to go through the air as much as I used to, so I kind of played mid-air shots. Uh, I went long one five and managed to get up and down that way, that, that shot probably isn't going to work this week the way that it, it hardened things up. But I, I think the way to play it is by using the contours. Don't try to go through the air. But there are going to be times where you're almost going to kind of be forced, depending on where the hole location is. If you don't have a whole lot of green to work with and you want to save par, you have two choices. You can play the aggressive shot through the air and hope that you land in the right spot and you get a better chance to save par. Or you kind of take your medicine and try to execute the best shot you can using the contours closer to the ground, you might have a longer putt coming back, but you have a putt coming back. If you don't execute those flop shots, in a lot of cases you may have the ball back at your feet or in a worse spot. So I think it's going to be situational, but my recommendation, generally speaking, if anybody cared about my opinion on short game at the U.S. Open, would be to play it on the ground. You know, one thing uh, that we'll see next year at Pebble is because of 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, um, there is a huge advantage to starting on 1 versus starting on 10. 
Um, six, seven, eight, nine, ten may be the toughest five-hole stretch of golf in all of America. You can make the argument. Um, is there? Uh, it, are the players who start on one versus ten going to have an advantage Thursday, Friday? Obviously, it evens out because you start, you know, um, you know, one day each way. But but would you be surprised if if you know, for example, come Thursday at, at, at two three o'clock when that morning wave is over, we see a bunch of players who started on blank hole up top versus those who started on something else? Maybe depends on the wind. If the prevailing wind is what it is, then I don't think it's going to matter that much. Um, you get out the gate with one. One's pretty easy. You should make a par at the first. It's probably your best birdie hole for a while. Two is going to be extremely difficult given its length. Three is difficult because of length and how tight it feels off the tee. Four and five you can get. Six you might be able to get. Seven's hard, eight's easy, nine, I mean, this is all relatively speaking, right. nine is a tough shot. Not, I mean, nine is a nasty hole. It's a great one, but it's really tough. So when you're going from nine to ten, you're going to basically two of the three hardest holes in the golf course, in my opinion, nine to ten. Ten is just a, a monster. I mean, it's the day we play, we play basically the same tees. We'll see at the U.S. Open because there's not much room there to change, but... It's basically a blind tee shot, and probably most pros won't take on the blind part of the tee shot. They'll land it farther back, leave a mid-iron into a tabletop green that's going to be pretty pretty hard to hold. And then 11, is I think, is harder than 7, and it's shorter. It's just an uphill, straight uphill blind shot. If you miss the green shorter to the right, you're gonna. there's a good chance you plug in the bunker, first of all. Second of all, the the resulting bunker shot, even if you have a perfect lie, it's really hard. So 10 and 11 are tough. And then you kind of swing around. 12, 13, 14 are not easy holes, but they're not tough holes. 15, you can make a birdie if you're brave. 16 is a is a par 5, but it you feel good making a 5. I mean, it, it's going to be playing into the wind really tough. 18, again, playing into the wind really tough. 17 is going to be 160 maybe, 170, 150. And it's probably the third or fourth most demanding approach shot on the course. So I don't care which side you come from. It's just not every hole with few exceptions. Like every fifth hole feels like, ha, I might be able to do something on this hole. And the rest of the time you're kind of playing defense. So I would say there's not an advantage to going off one or ten. If anything, maybe a slight advantage to going off the first because you can work your way into the round. You've warmed up by the time you're at nine, and then by the time you get to ten, I mean, you should be playing pretty. If you're going to play well, you should be playing pretty well at that point. So you get the hardest holes of the course by the time you're into it. Um, let's now start talking about players. Uh, let's start with Jordan Spieth, who is the biggest mystery to me of, of 2018. Can't putt well. You putted these greens. Is this a week where your putting bounces back? I don't think that they're particularly difficult. Uh, if they run them where they think they're going to run them, you know, in the 11 to 12 range to try to account for some wind and, and just be fair in that regard, I, I don't think that that works in speed's favor or against speed all that much. Uh, you know, it's basically standard PJ Tour green speed at that point. 
and he just has not looked comfortable putting this year. I mean, it, it, and frankly, the last 18 months he hasn't looked comfortable. I mean, his downward trend is to a negative strokes gain putting, and the second that happens, he's more of a normal guy than a superstar. Yeah, I mean, it. it I mean, to your point, if you take out, I mean, he didn't play well down the stretch at Hartford. Um, his ball striking in short games what saved him at Pebble. Uh, the bunker shot obviously, you know, masks what was a really, really poor back nine in Hartford. From 14 on, he was the Jordan Spieth all of us know, but, I mean, he was not, like, having an insanely amazing putting week at the Open Championship. He just woke up when when all of us woke up at the Open Championship last year. So, to your point, he, he's not really, you know, had us jumping for joy over the last two years, basically. Yeah, I mean, there there's fits and starts where he puts great, but generally speaking, he is not the same guy he was even a couple of years ago, and that should give him a lot of cause for concern. Yes. <laughs> even though he has dramatically improved his ball striking, his driving is better, his, his tee to green game is really very good, but now his short game is his liability. If he can hit a lot of greens, which I think he can, he can do, I mean, he plays the wind pretty well, he can certainly be long enough to handle this golf course. I don't think that's a problem. So, I think he'll hit a lot of greens. I think he's going to get frustrated though if he putts poorly. He's going to start taking chances because he's going to try to force the issue. If he can stay with a game plan of kind of being comfortable with pars, and if that's what this championship turns out to be, where par is your friend, I think he'll be okay. But if it turns into the possibility of a 4, 5, 6 under par winning score... I think he'll get frustrated and play himself out of it. Um, Tiger has not finished rounds well. Four out of the last ten, I believe it is. Four out of the last nine, four out of the last ten. I forget what Bob Harrick's stat was. Um, I'm, I'm concerned this week. Uh, a, I don't think he's going to win a major this year. You and I have talked extensively about that. But B, this finishing issue is a problem, and this does not seem like a golf course where you can get out to a fast start and hold on tight and, and still be okay. If, if he's got problems down the stretch, his, his scores are going to balloon, it sounds like, a shinny. If his driving is, is as unpredictable as it has been this year, he's going he's gonna to struggle to score. He's going to struggle to establish a rhythm because you just you can't miss. <laughs> you just can't yeah. miss. Um, I know he's got big misses, and to be fair, the big miss is probably the best miss uh, it's Shinnecock because it's it's into the people into the fescue that's been there not the new fescue that is deep, thick, and nasty and you're not going to advance the ball so if he's going to miss he needs to, to swing for the fences miss big and and also just to interrupt you for a second Ryan uh, uh, sorry just uh, uh, just to interrupt you for a second but but at, at, at the U.S. Open, also, isn't missing big, for the most part, the way to miss because the crowd is, has tamped down the rough? That's generally true, yeah. And even the way that they're probably going to set up the rope line, I would imagine you're still going to have some place, a fair amount of places in play that the, the gallery will not trample that will be that, that original fescue, so to speak. Um so that he can miss as wide as he wants and probably still be pretty okay. Right. Um, at least you're going to have a better chance of getting a, 
a lie where you can put the club on the ball and advance it, if not on the green, pretty close to the green, as opposed to missing by three, four, five yards on some holes and you, you won't see the ball. It'll be gone. So I, I'm not as concerned about the driving because, I mean, look at his misses at Memorial. I mean, they were OB, in the woods, all over the joint. They weren't like, oh, I missed by a yard. It's more like, I missed by 25 yards. Yeah. So that may not be the worst thing. But there are certainly spots where you're going to get punished regardless. His uh, iron play is as good as it's ever been. I mean, it really has. It, he, he's the best player on the PGA Tour, I think, in proximity to the hole when he plays. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. But he has 42-year-old putting stroke that looks like a guy who doesn't feel comfortable over a five-footer. So if he's, that's what you're going to deal with a lot of the in, in a U.S. Open, to save par. Five, six, seven footers, and he doesn't look comfortable over there. So if there's a liability this week, it's going to be putting more than anything else. He's got everything else either potentially to work out in his favor or is world-class at it. So I think he can contend. I just It's hard-pressed for me to believe at some point he's not going to either jolt himself into this run where he just can't hit driver or where he just can't make a putt. And that'll you only have to screw up for about six or nine holes of a major championship to have lost. Tiger's 25th this year in uh, proximity to the hole um, on the PGA Tour. He does qualify for stats now. He has uh, played enough rounds um, to qualify for those stats. And uh, his proximities um, from... You know, 50 to 125 is 22nd. 175 to 200 is 24th. From 200 over is 19th. Um, he he has as 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 you said, um, really gotten himself uh, in 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 good shape on his way into the greens with the irons. And as I said, overall he's uh, fourth in strokes gain approach to the green, fifth in strokes gain around to the green, uh, but. 89th in strokes game putting. He's sixth in, in strokes game tee to green. So um, it's that putter that has held him back while his uh, while his iron game has has really helped him. Um, we could spend all day talking about guys. Golf is so deep right now. We've and we're, and we're once again on a run as we got in post Augusta of a bunch of guys um, who really uh, are not. You know the 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 biggest biggest names, except except for what Justin Rose did at Colonial, and it would seem to me if you're looking for a nice all around game this week that Justin Rose fits that bill, Ryan. Yeah, obviously Justin Rose, Henrik Stenson has actually had some really good all around numbers this year as well. Jimmy Walker does. I think Brooks Kepka and Jason Day do, but they have a couple of rounds in there. Uh, certainly Kepka does for the the DFL events that he had uh, before the, he had the surgery that bring down their numbers in terms of strokes gained approach. They're both also really well-rounded players. Yeah. Obviously, Dustin Johnson's well-rounded. Justin Thomas. So this is, I thought this was interesting. I, I kind of did an exercise last night looking at the average strokes gained per round for players in 
field where the official World Golf Ranking gave 50 points or more to the first place winner and then less than 50 points. And two guys that qualified for kind of having at least 10 rounds in both types of tournaments, the two guys that most stood out to me as played tougher fields and therefore usually tougher golf courses better than weaker fields and easier courses were Justin Thomas and Ricky Fowler. They play approximately 0.5 to 0.6 strokes gain better per round on those tougher golf courses. So my, I'm also drawn to guys like JT and Ricky Fowler for that reason. But then again, you got guys like DJ, Rory, Jason Day. A lot of those guys don't qual- didn't qualify for that comparison because they don't play weak events or they don't play enough of them. So just an interesting thing to think about, but there are a lot of well, I mean, there are probably five or six really well-rounded guys given their stats this year that should fit the mold of being able to win. We just kind of went through all of them. Interesting. Um, we have some breaking news that I will share with you live on the air. This broke 15 minutes ago, so you're hearing this probably for the first time unless you had source information on this, Ryan, at the same time I do. Uh, Mark Berman, who is the sports director at the Fox affiliate in Houston, is reporting that Jim Crane, the owner of the Astros, has reached an agreement on a five-year deal with the PGA Tour to run the Houston Open. Uh, for those who may have forgotten, Shell got out. Houston had no sponsor. Houston uh, was at threat for leaving the PGA Tour schedule in its entirety. Jim Crane, who is extremely rich, um, and some investors had gotten together and, and basically, if I'm not mistaken, Ryan, had proposed to basically cull together some funds to keep this tournament alive and move it to the fall. And what Mark Berman is reporting is that it will be at, at, at the Golf Club of Houston in the, in the second week of October in 2019 and eventually move it to um Memorial Park, which is the golf course that's gotten a lot of attention recently in, in stories about the Houston Open, about where they would like to move its eventual home to. But this is obviously good news um, for the Houston area and good news, I think, for the tour, which gives it a nice event to start the fall stretch. Yeah, I mean, for the tour to not be in the nation's fourth biggest media market is absurd. So good for Jim Crane to figure it out. I'm, I'm curious what the details will be in terms of how Crane and whatever group of sponsors they, he's put together, what they'll name the tournament, will they give it a Houston Open, what will they what will they do with that, and then what will their relationship be with the Houston Golf Association moving forward? Will it be the Houston Golf Association runs it, and Crane puts up the money, and then the, the charitable component is kind of his to direct or what that's going to look like, but that's a, that's a good thing. That's that's a good thing to have that in place, and then you know five years from now they can look at potentially having another date that's maybe a little bit friendlier, a little bit better. But uh, the the fall schedule for the PGA Tour is going to continue to expand. Yeah, for a variety of reasons. I mean, the season's going to end sooner, so there's going to be a, an extra month of stuff to figure out, and some tournaments, frankly, want to move to the fall. Uh, Houston's going to be one. Greenbrier's going to be one. We're going to see another tournament probably in Asia come along. So there's there's going to be an expansive footprint in the fall that's not going to feel anything like the fall series used to feel like. These are going to be important tournaments with big-time purses 
in the fall, and there's not going to be really a, a lull in the schedule anymore. You're either going big or going home. So uh, good for Houston to kind of kick the year off right. I, I think that's a good move. And by the way, I, I can actually fill you in. Mark Berman is reporting that the uh, tournament will be backed by the Houston Astros Foundation. So I don't know what that means for the Houston Golf Association or what their involvement will be down the line, but it seems like that proposal, which he floated um, a while back, which is to basically take over the event and make his charity arm the, the charity arm and the functioning body, uh, looks to be the the direction they're going to go with that. That's, that's good to hear. Um, that's very good to hear. So it, it's a ten, it was certainly a tenuous situation. Yeah. Um, and and what's fascinating about this to me now, um, and this is going to be a whole discussion for another podcast because I think this is going to really anger some players is if you believe the reporting from John Feinstein, and and he's got good sourcing on this, because he and I went back and forth about this on Twitter, and somebody else, I believe Rex Hoggard, backed him up on this. If the belief of the PGA Tour is to not get done on Labor Day weekend, but but to get done before Labor Day weekend, the weekend before, and you want to put that Memphis WGC on the back of the Open Championship that next week, that's, that's... I'm not sure that's going to work. You may have some tired faces in August. I'm not... I, sorry, sorry, late July, first week of August. I'm not convinced that's going to fly, and I still believe that they may try to do something with that date because I just can't see how that works, Ryan. I think it would be a terrible... I mean, I love Memphis, Tennessee, but you couldn't pay me to be in Memphis, Tennessee in late July. It just... <laughs> Well, that's a separate issue. I'm more referring to just going straight from a major in England or Scotland or Ireland next year and come immediately back to play a World Golf Championship event in Memphis. Canada's worked because it's been a gap for those who want to keep the momentum and take that charter straight there, go you know, go for it, and for everybody else, you get a week to breathe. Yeah, and I think the tour would come back and say, well, we, we did this at the PGA Championship, you know, we paired the two together, but... Obviously, intercontinental travel is a very different thing than going from a domestic PGA championship site to Akron, Ohio, or vice versa. That's, yeah. It just is. But I, I think that at some point they're going to have, they will probably make this work for next year. And that from what I've been told a couple of different times this year, the PGA Tour has asked its players to kind of step up and step into these fields. Uh, particularly Colonial comes to mind to get a good field, to give a good impression, either for a tournament that's under pressure, has just been saved, what have you. Do it for one year, and then they'll figure it out. And I, I think that's kind of what's going to have to happen with Memphis is some guys are going to have to suck it up. But the, the look is going to be bad if a lot of the top 50 don't show up to a, a WGC event with a $10.5 million purse. Yeah. And they go, oh, I'm tired. Well, in a in a non Ryder Cup year, and in a year where the President's Cup is um, way later in the year in Australia, you know, because because you can look at, at last uh, sorry twenty sixteen and 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 the move for the Olympics and all that stuff, and 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 when the European Tour decertified Akron, I mean that was a whole fiasco, but but there is no excuse except for poor scheduling as to why you would skip you know, a, a WGC in Memphis in a non-Ryder Cup year. Um, 
So, yeah, no, it, it's, it's going to be fascinating. It's going to be bizarre. And, and, hey, good for Minneapolis-St. Paul because it looks like they're going to get that date and 3M is going to be ecstatic uh, right before the U.S. Open or right after it, whatever they decide. But, anyway, we'll get to 2019 scheduling once they announce it, which I would assume would be soon. I mean, I would – I thought, you know, I they obviously wanted to do it at the players. I thought they were going to do it at Memorial – but obviously, this Houston issue held them up. I don't know what event they would announce this at. There's no clear. Unless they announce it at Hartford next year, which is you know, uh, sorry, next week, which is seen a renaissance. They're not going to announce it at Tigers event, which is going away. Uh, Greenbrier is moving to the fall. I'm not sure that's where you would do an announcement for this stuff. Um, Akron would be awkward. I don't know when they're going to announce this 2019. <laughs> places to do it. I, yeah. I mean, this, this was really the last cog in the wheel, what's going to happen with Houston. If they've got that deal now that it's being reported locally with uh, with Mark Berman, then I think that's the end of it. You know, you, you've got your two events you're adding. You've got Detroit, Minneapolis, St. Paul. You've saved Houston. You move that date. You move Greenbrier. Nationals going away. That's pretty much it. So I, I think that uh, that'll all work out. Yeah, and uh, Boston's going away. And going yeah, away. Yeah. yeah, can't forget about that. And the wonderful off week, which was a unanimous winner by all players. So, so Tiger actually has 80 PGA Tour wins, Ryan, because he won the off week. <laughs> Just keep that in oh, mind. I, I actually can say this. Uh, so kind of breaking a little bit of news. I, I, I don't have all of the details on this, but some good sources on this, that for the BMW Championship, which is kind of floating around between Chicago and then other cities every other year, so right. years, it's going to come to Baltimore in 2020. Ooh! And the it's either going to be a Baltimore Country Club, which currently hosts the Big Ten Championship, the Men's Golf Championship, I believe the women too, every year, and it's going to do that for the next several years, and that's been lengthened out to about 7,500, 7,600 yards, or Caves Valley will host it there's kind of a back and forth on who's going to do that right now, but there's an Evan Scholars connection now here in the area, and uh, that's going to be a big component of it. Well, and this is also, I, somehow we've gotten way off as open by this Houston breaking news, but it's actually fascinating because, you know, Shinnecock and, and the proximity between Shinnecock and Hartford has obviously helped that event next week, and, and this all plays in, obviously, as we talk about guys peaking and guys not, and Dustin's trying to overcome this curse that no player's ever won the week before the U.S. Open, um, and he obviously won yesterday, but the fact that Washington doesn't have an event, and, and all these big markets in Philly, and all these major markets won't, it won't consistently have an event, or doesn't have an event, period, um, it is a fascinating tale in itself, and, and also good stuff for a podcast, so I'm glad to hear Baltimore is about to get a PGA Tour event, because that's a a golf hungry area um, that uh, that uh, truly deserves to have some high quality golf, and obviously, with what the Western Open people have done uh, with the Evan Scholars Foundation, it's obviously great work. Um, I'm gonna skip back to the U.S. Open now and basically go from the end backwards, and you'll see how I'm doing this in a second. I've said for over a year, I think this is Ricky Fowler's U.S. Open. He and Justin, I believe, or maybe it was Jordan, went and played Shinnecock last year. He seemed to like it. I think Ricky Fowler wins this thing. Augusta proved to me he can have a comeback Sunday. I like him this week. I think we see not no names, but some odd names float up because of 
how hot and cold Shinnecock can be. If you get that little bit off, as you said, it can all go downhill fast. Um, I think we get some unique names up there. I think Rory implodes. I think Phil implodes. I think Tiger may show greatness and implode. I think one of the Jays, Jason, Jordan, Justin, float up there. I think DJ conks out. Um, and I think this is Ricky Fowler's U.S. Open. Who do you like this week? Who wins? And kind of who do you see flaming out? I like Brooks and I like DJ, and just based on their recent performances, DJ has finished no worse than 18th in a stroke play event this year. I, I we're in June, and that's unbelievable. Um, I know it's not; it would be a standard for Tiger at his best, but in this modern era, that's unbelievable. JT is very similar, very close in that regard. I, I think he's probably my third. Justin Rose is probably my fourth, just because I, I just think this is going to be a younger guy's U.S. Open. I think Ricky can do it. I, I just don't have him up there. Um, but that doesn't mean he can't. I, I have a feeling the older guys are going to fade and fade quickly. Tiger's going to fade. Phil's going to fade. May, maybe Henrik fades, um, but he's had some really good finishes of late as well. So I, I guess that's who I really like is kind of those four guys I mentioned. Everybody else, I mean, there are probably 25 guys you could win this. And you know, I did a top 15 ranking of players for, for our fantasy article. I got to 15, and I was like, I left out some pretty big names here. Um, Jason Day and John Rahm, who are incredible just drivers and short game players and not the best approach players, if they can just drive the ball really well, they could give themselves tremendous opportunities. So... It's, there are a lot of players who can win this championship, but I, I tend to stick with the guys right now who are playing the kind of power golf that is required of a longer golf course that's going to play in the wind, and I, I think that comes down to Brooks Kepka, Dustin Johnson, and Justin Thomas, and maybe as a slightly shorter hitter, but still pretty long, Justin Rose. Is there a name you want to uh, put on this prediction? Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with I'm going to go with Dustin Johnson. I just think he's he's just unflappable. He plays power golf in a way that just is beautiful and kind of untouchable. And uh, I, I think this is his time again. We shall see uh, what happens here at the U.S. Open at Shinnecock. Is there anything else, since we kind of jumped all over the place, is there anything else about the U.S. Open you wanted to say before we uh, kiss this podcast goodnight? I'm really glad, and I'm saying this kind of preemptively, that Shinnecock is going to get a chance to restore itself in the public view. This is an incredible property. Like I said earlier, so much history of golf is intertwined at this place, and so much history happened because of this place. National Golf Links of America, William Flynn's career, C.D. McDonald's career, work with Seth Rayner. I mean, it, just so much important stuff happened because of Shinnecock Hills in golf that it deserves to not be held as the place where the USGA screwed up the seventh hole. So preemptively, I am very happy happy that this is going to get Shinnecock back to where it deserves to be. I'm excited. I, I think that um, our, our great um, friend Mike Davis... 
Uh, we'll, we'll get this one right, and I think it's going to be a great U.S. Open indeed, and I think that it's going to exact uh, and demand the best from those involved. And uh, as a result, I, I, I think uh, it's, it's going to be fascinating to see how this plays out. Um, and, 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 and that assumes everybody can get to the golf course on time and not be late. Um, that, that's a big one, too. Don't be late, folks. Don't miss your tea time. We don't want any of that fiasco getting into the U.S. Open. Uh, Ryan Ballinger, as always, thanks for coming on Teeing It Up. Thank you for uh, uh, lending your insights from playing, and have fun as you venture up there. Thanks, Jeremy. Appreciate it. Fun and, as always. And thank you for listening to Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling. We'll talk to you later, folks.